Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 177, The Second Sermian Creed of 357. At this point in the story, we're still within the reign of Constantius II. This is one of Constantine the Great's sons, the guy who ended up after his other brothers were killed, inheriting the whole empire. And he's continued Constantine's policy of trying to bring about religious unification, trying to get these squabbling bishops to agree on a single statement of faith. It was this kind of management that had resulted in the Nicene Creed, Although, as we've seen, that just made everything more complicated and eventually added fuel to the controversies. Constantius was probably more interested in peace and unification than he was in doctrine, although he's basically taken the two-being side, the two-hypostases side, that the Father is one being and the Son is another. The only alternative to them seemed to be to just say that the divine element in Jesus was God, that is, was the Father, And isn't that the old monarchian heresy? And that's how the Nicene Creed sounded to most in the Greek-speaking East. So Constantius is favoring what some historians call, not too accurately, the Arian side of the dispute. And of course, they're not really Arians. They're not disciples of Arius, and they're not maintaining the condemned claims of Arius. But they are subordinationists. They are distinguishing between the Father and the Son, and they clearly do think that the Father is the one true God, And the Son they call God from God, and some of them also call the Son true God from true God, but they make clear that he's not as great as the Father. How does Constantius pursue this policy of trying to religiously unify his empire? The answer, both persuasion and coercion. The last creed we talked about was the first Sirmian Creed from the year 351, and in between that Creed of 351 and the one for today's episode, which is in 357, there were several others. And there's a list of all the known council-produced creeds in this era at the excellent 4th Century Online website, which I recommend. Hopefully you've clicked a few links in some of these history episodes I've been doing, and you've seen this very helpful website. It's co-sponsored by Wisconsin Lutheran College and Asia Lutheran Seminary, and it's at fourthcentury.com. This is where, for instance, I was able to find a complete English translation of all the fragments of Marcellus of Ancyra that I talked about back in episode 175. There's all kinds of wonderful stuff there and all kinds of helpful references to other literature, so definitely check that out. In between the two Sirmian councils that resulted in creeds, they list five, possibly six, other meetings. About most of these meetings, we know very little. We don't know how many people were there. We don't have the minutes produced of the meeting. There's a lot we don't know about why they met and what they did. There was a council in 353 at Alexandria, which was presided over by Athanasius himself and naturally was declaring Athanasius' innocence of all the charges against him. The Emperor Constantius presided over a meeting at Rome that same year, 353, but we don't have any detailed record of what happened there. Yet again in 353, a council called at Arles by Constantius, and this required people to sign on to the condemnation of Athanasius. At this point, Constantius had accurately sized him up as an enemy, I think, and before too many years, Athanasius was to return the favor. 
Constantius also summoned a council in the year 355 to come to Milan. They again condemn Athanasius, and they depose and exile Lucifer of Cagliari, who I talked about in an earlier episode who had been publicly denouncing this emperor. In 356 or 357, there was another one at Baiterai. This is remembered as the occasion when Hilary of Poitiers was deposed and exiled by the emperor. This presumably after the emperor had asked him to sign a statement of faith and Hilary refused. And that seems to have been his main method. Hansen discusses Constantius doing this at Arles and Milan in 353 and 355. Hansen says that the statement might have been something like this. There is one ingenerate God the Father and one only Son, God from God, light from light, firstborn of all creation, and the Holy Spirit the Comforter. Hansen comments, Hillary says that these statements, perfectly orthodox in themselves, were designed to link together in the minds of the unwary the rejection of Photinus, the alleged guilt of Athanasius, and ultimately the abandonment of the Catholic faith, and that what they really intended to teach was, made out of nothing, there was a time when he did not exist, and before he was begotten, he did not exist. Hansen comments, this may well, then, have been the gist of the formula which Constantius imposed at Arles and Milan, and which caused such alarm to well-informed minds in the West. Right, we're in such a highly charged atmosphere that this really bland and uncontroversial statement is interpreted as going to war for the other side. So it says that there's only one God that's ingenerate, and it calls the Son the firstborn. Aha! It must be subordinationist and two different beings. Well... That's not really obvious, nor is it obviously saying there was a time when the sun was not or that he was created at all, much less created from nothing. But anyway, that's how it was taken. It was taken as demanding repudiation of the Nicene Creed and just surrendering to the, quote, Arians. At least that's how someone like Hillary took it. As you might expect, generally speaking, this pressure from the emperor worked. More often than not, bishops could be made to sign on. Of course, this must have been with varying degrees of sincerity, from complete sincerity to none at all, to many degrees in the middle. To Constantius, this was just responsible governing, but any Christian ought to pause and wonder about what's going on here. Is this how we decide what to confess? How did it come to this? When emperors first got involved, the emperor seemed like just a friendly sponsor of the meetings, someone who's just interested in the peace of the church. How could that be bad? Now the church has a defender. Now, a couple of decades later, you have the emperor literally telling Christian leaders what theology they must publicly endorse and driving away those who refuse. Now there comes on the stage an interesting character who we don't know that much about, but who is at the center of all these disputes. This is a bishop named Osius, or Hosius, of Cordova in Spain, and he lived from something like 256 to 357, so he lived this incredibly long life. And this guy actually presided over probably the three most important Nicene councils. Well, it's a little bit anachronistic to call Antioch Nicene. It happened just before Nicaea, but they believe that he presided over this council, which we discussed in an earlier episode. This was the first council that actually was called with the purpose of rebuking Arius and his fellows. Then he presided at Nicaea in 325, and again at the Western meeting at Sertica in 343. He must have been considered a kind of elder statesman, and he must have represented the Western view to a lot of people. 
Athanasius gives us a part of a letter that Osius is supposed to have written to the emperor Constantius. And some historians have doubted whether this is an authentic letter. But on the whole, generally you trust a report, even if it's from a scoundrel, unless you have firm reason to deny the report. Sometime towards the end of his life, Hansen says maybe around 356, he wrote to Constantius and said this, Do not intrude yourself into ecclesiastical affairs, and do not give orders to us about such subjects, but rather learn about such matters from us. God has assigned the empire to you, and has entrusted us with the affairs of the church. So there's a bold rebuke from this guy that's a very elderly patriarch of the pro-Nicene side, calling out the emperor in public. If only the bishops had consistently held to this attitude as a group. Hansen comments, All parties in the Arian controversy were as ready to champion the freedom of the church when they were out of favor with the emperor as they were happy to accept his assistance when he supported them. To put it in our terms, they all loved separation of church and state when the emperor favored the other side. And the second the emperor switched to their side, they wanted the emperor to crush the heretics. And here's an interesting twist in the story. Somehow, Osius was compelled to sign a non-Nicene creed. And this seems to have been the second Sirmium creed that we're going to hear later in this episode from the year 357. So the guy's deep into his 90s, apparently. And he does this about face, where he signs on to this subordinationist statement. Was he pressured? Was he threatened? Was he literally beaten? Athanasius kind of suggests that, but you're not quite sure if you should believe him. Athanasius discusses this in a book of his called Apologia de Fuga, Defense of His Flight. So he's defending himself after having escaped from the agents of the emperor, who at this point is trying to forcibly depose him. This is what Athanasius says about the embarrassing case of Osius or Hosius. Of the great Hosius, who answers to his name, that confessor of a happy old age, it is superfluous for me to speak, for I suppose it is known to all men that they caused him also to be banished, for he is not an obscure person, but of all men the most illustrious, and more than this. When was there a council held in which he did not take the lead, and by right counsel convince everyone? Where is there a church that does not possess some glorious monuments of his patronage? Who has ever come to him in sorrow and has not gone away rejoicing? What needy person ever asked his aid and did not obtain what he desired? And yet even on this man they made their assault, because knowing the lies which they invent in behalf of their iniquity, he would not subscribe to their designs against us. And if afterwards, upon the repeated stripes above measure that were inflicted upon him and the conspiracies that were formed against his kinfolk, he yielded to them for a time as being old and infirm in body, yet at least their wickedness is shown even in this circumstance, so zealously did they endeavor by all means to prove that they were not truly Christians. So he makes it sound like they're raining down their fists on the guy or hitting him with a stick or something. Did it happen? I, I don't know. I kind of doubt it. There was thuggery employed on various occasions in some of these disputes, but it wasn't the norm at a meeting of bishops. At this point, Athanasius is in his third exile away from Alexandria, Egypt. The first one began in 335, 
when the Council of Tyre had him deposed for his alleged crimes. He returned from that one just a couple years later in 337. But in 339, he's out again. This time he goes to Rome and gains the sympathy of the Pope and is hanging with Marcellus. He ends up, as we heard, at the Council at Sertica in 343. In fact, his presence there is one of the things that leads to the meeting never really happening. Manages to get back to Alexandria in 346. But in 356, boom, he's in exile for the third time. What happened? Well, what happened is mind-blowing. Constantius, the emperor, tried to arrest him a couple of times and failed. He couldn't get it done. Constantius had summoned Athanasius to a council, and Athanasius refused. And Constantius said, well, this guy's in rebellion now. He's not loyal to me. I mean, Constantius had already had one of his Caesars, one of his subordinate rulers, executed for just having acted without his authorization. So he's not going to take this kind of crap from this gangster bishop of Alexandria. So he sends an imperial agent there to arrest him. He can't do it. He shows up at the church where Athanasius is with soldiers and everything. And Athanasius apparently, either he gets away quickly or he has enough people to just stand in the way like a protective mob to keep the soldiers from arresting him. So they try to arrest him in September. He gets away. More agents come in January the next year. Soldiers attack the church he's in. He gets away. His supporters, he has occupying the churches of Alexandria so that no one can come in and consecrate other bishops or priests there who are, quote, Arians. These people are finally muscled out of their churches in June. Meanwhile, since Athanasius has been deposed, the new bishop is named George, and he shows up in town to take over. Not too long after this, Hansen reports, the Athanasians attacked George while he was in the church of Dionysius in August 358. He was rescued by the prefect's police and two months later left to join the other bishops of his party to help prepare a creed which would serve as a basis of agreement for the general council on a large scale which Constantius was planning. On October 11th, after George's departure, the Athanasians were strong enough to gain possession of the churches again. But then again, two months later, the emperor's agent shows up, rips the churches back out of their hands, and all this time Athanasius is hiding out among the monks in the desert. In defense of his flight, Athanasius spends about two chapters detailing what he says are the atrocities of George, all the rough things that he did, such as having people beat up, having people arrested, supposedly threatening a bunch of virgins that they have to confess Arian faith, or they're going to get thrown into a fire, and that doesn't work, so they strip them naked and beat them in the face so that they're unrecognizable. People are brutally scourged. Did these things happen? Probably the bishops of Alexandria in this time are some rough players, and you see this after the period we're talking about as well in the next century. What we learn just from the basics of these interactions is that Athanasius could mobilize a mob on his behalf. They could occupy a church. They could fight in the streets against imperial troops. And they could sure as heck defy an emperor by hiding a guy. And if they needed to forcibly retake a church occupied by a, quote, Arian, they were capable of that, and they did it. So I don't really see any innocent parties here. I just think you have to stand back, as with the imperial interference in theology, and say, wow, how did we get here? 
Athanasius gets away so many times and writes to brag about it that he's considered a kind of Houdini in some Christian traditions, the guy that just can escape no matter what. And in this period, he switches from trying to bring Constantius around to seeing his side of it to just constantly denouncing Constantius as a tyrant and a horrible person. Constantius naturally returned the favor. Hansen says this, At some point in 356 or 357, Constantius sent a letter to the people of Alexandria. It was couched in the usual imperial style, a mixture of pomposity and woolly verbiage. It is full of abuse of Athanasius, whom he calls this pest and most wicked, and it commends George to them. That's the replacement bishop. The fact that all attempts to arrest Athanasius failed is a tribute to the remarkable and widespread popularity which he had attained among the ordinary people, not only of Alexandria, but of Egypt. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the Second Sirmian Creed from the year 357. The council which produced this creed seemingly was small. We don't have any accurate count, but we're not talking 300 people. Probably we're not talking 100 bishops. And you see this constantly referred to in historical literature as the blasphemy of Sirmium. I initially thought I would call the episode that, and then I realized, no, this is stupid. There's nothing blasphemous here. Come on. Do you know what blasphemy is? Blasphemy is a label that was stuck on it by Hilary of Poitiers, a.k.a. the Western Athanasius. He also calls it Osius's lunacy, but Osius's lunacy was not as catchy, so the first title has stuck. But seriously, it's a silly, partisan, and prejudicial label. Hilary thought that Osius and a bishop named Potamius had written this creed, but historians now disagree. Osius was extremely old at this time, and probably easy to coerce. In his book on synods, De Synodis, Hilary claims that the Nicene Creed is very popular in the West, and that really no one there wants to get rid of it, except, he says, the aged Osius, and as for him, he was too much in love with the tomb. (laughs) Why, like he didn't have anything to lose? Hansen thinks that bishops Valens, Ursacius, Potamius, and Germinius must have composed this, but we really don't know. All we know is that a mean of bishops voted this in as an official creed. And I have to say that passions still run high about this creed. RPC Hansen is unusually worked up about it and strongly insists that it is an Arian creed. Let's listen to it and see whether or not that assessment is correct. It is agreed that there is one almighty God and Father, as is believed throughout the whole world, and his only Son, Jesus Christ the Lord, our Saviour, born from him before the ages. But there cannot be two gods, nor should they be preached, as the text runs, I will go to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Therefore, there is one God of all, as the Apostle taught. What they do at the beginning is strongly stake down their brand of monotheism. 
They don't argue for monotheism by arguing that there's one hypostasis between the Father and the Son. They argue for monotheism by emphasizing the uniqueness of the Father. This is the one Almighty God. And there aren't two of those. And they point out that Jesus says that the Father is his God. And, of course, that's not only in John 20, it's in several other passages as well. If you want to see what those other passages are, I'll put a link on the blog post for this episode. So, monotheism, well, that's not a bad place to start. It is an Eastern way. This is the subordinationist way of securing monotheism. But so far, it's not too unusual. Let's hear them continue. But as for the fact that some or many are concerned about substance, which is called ousia in Greek, that is, to speak more explicitly, homoousian or homoiousian, as it is called, there should be no mention of it whatever, nor should anyone preach it. And this is the cause and reason that it is not included in the divine scriptures, and it is beyond man's knowledge, nor can anyone declare the birth of the Son, and it is written on this subject, who shall explain his generation? For it is clear that only the Father knows how he begot his Son, and the Son how he was begotten by the Father. Okay, here's the anti-Nicaea part. Hamausias, same essence or substance, they don't think that's helpful. They also call out the term hamoiousion, which means of like substance or similar substance. In fact, this is the first mention of it in a creed. They say, look, don't teach this and preach this. It's controversial, and it's not part of the scriptures. And remember, Nicaea had said not only the Father and Son are same essence or substance, but they also said that the Son was generated out of the substance of the Father. And a lot of people wondered if that was supposed to be some kind of material division or something like that. What they just did here in this creed is accept the general idea of eternal generation but insist that nobody knows how that works. And so we don't want to hear any speculations about generation from God's substance. It's beyond man's knowledge. And in this context, they give a proof text, who shall explain his generation? This is a really, I think, flimsy proof text in discussing this idea of eternal generation. It's from Isaiah 53, talking about the suffering servant. It's obviously an obscure phrase in the original Hebrew because modern translations render it in many different ways. NIV says, yet who of his generation protested? This is after the suffering servant was taken away. Another translation says, who could have imagined his future? Another says, who considered his fate? Yeah, so in any case, neither the language nor the context really has anything to do with eternal generation. The Greek Septuagint says in English translation, In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will describe his generation? Because his life is being taken from the earth. He was led to death on account of the acts of lawlessness of my people. So it's kind of free association as interpretation. When the Trinity's podcast returns, this council says how the Father differs from the Son.
There is no uncertainty about the Father being greater. It cannot be doubted by anyone that the Father is greater in honour, in dignity, in glory, in majesty, in the very name of Father, for he himself witnesses, He who sent me is greater than I. And nobody is unaware that this is Catholic doctrine, that there are two persons of the Father and the Son, and that the Father is greater, and the Son is subjected in common with all the things which the Father subjected to him. That the Father has no beginning is invisible, immortal, and impassable. But that the Son is born from the Father, God from God, light from light, whose generation as Son, as has been said already, no one knows except the Father. And that the Son, God, himself our Lord and God, as it is said, assumed flesh or body, that is man, from the womb of the Virgin Mary, as the angel foretold. As all the scriptures teach, he took human nature from the Virgin Mary, and it was through this that he suffered. But that is the summary of the whole faith, and the confirmation of it, that the Trinity should always be preserved. As we read in the Gospel, Go and baptise all nations in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And the Comforter, the Spirit, is through the Son, who was sent and came accordingly to the promise, so that he might support, teach, and sanctify the apostles and all believers. All right, so we have subordinationism in all caps here. Father's greater in honor, dignity, glory, majesty. There's no uncertainty about this. It's Jesus himself who says the Father is greater than I. They're referring here to John 14, 28, which was a favorite text for Arius and countless other subordinationists. I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. There's John 14, 28 then in some of its context. There are a lot of ways that later theologians spin this so that it's not saying that God is greater than Jesus, that is, the Father is greater than Jesus. They'll say that this is only the Logos talking and not the man Jesus. They'll say that the one Christ is here speaking only from his human nature and not his divine nature. But look, on the face of it, there's just one speaker here. It's the man Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he says, don't feel bad for me, even though I'm about to die. It's better for me because I'll now be with God and God's greater than me. No doubt he's looking forward to his exaltation. But Jesus, or the author of this gospel here, they give no hint that you're supposed to relativize his statement to one of his natures, or that you're supposed to understand it economically, or in terms of his role, 
rather than in terms of just plain greatness, just being greater than. In other words, ontological greatness. And remember, it's not only Arius, but it's the whole non-Nicene side in this controversy that's basically willing to take this passage at face value. Whether or not they emphasize it is another thing. Also, typically subordinationist point, the Father doesn't come from anything else, but the Son exists because of the Father. Not a controversial point in the East at this time. They're a little more confrontational when they say that the Father not only has no beginning, but is invisible, immortal, and impassable. Obviously, you could literally see Jesus. Obviously, the Son died. So, in some sense, he was not immortal. And just about all Christians believe that the Son really suffered. So then he was not impassable. Impassable means incapable of suffering. Notice that even though they said there are not two gods and two gods should not be preached, they do use the traditional statement that the Son is God from God. So there are two who are being called God there. But I guess their point is he's not going to be God in the same sense as the Father is God. The thing that's the most curious about this creed to me is the total lack of anathemas, lack of official damnations at the end. They don't give the now customary damnations of Arius and those specific claims that there was a time when the sun was not, that the sun was generated from nothing, nor do they damn the monarchians. Why not? I don't know. I guess they just thought that their statement was clear enough and they didn't have to then show that they're correct by damning everybody else. I suppose it's also possible that the anathemas were lost. At the end, they mention the Trinity. Of course, they mean just the triad of God, His Son, and His Spirit. Just as really with people like Eusebius, the triad are the three greatest beings, the greatest being God. R.P.C. Hansen, interestingly, is eager to insist that this is a, quote, Arian creed although he admits that it doesn't reproduce the specifically condemned points of Arius that you've heard damned in several other creeds, both East and West. Why does he want to tag it as Arian? He says this, The doctrine is clearly Arian in its drastic, consistent, and determined subordination of the Son to the Father, in its insistence on the unique status of the Father, in its explicit rejection of the concept of substance, probably because the use of the word was thought, as it was always thought by Arians, to introduce corporeal notions into the Godhead, and in its careful account of how the Son did the suffering by means of his body, flesh or man, but one can be pretty sure not human mind. It is the Son who suffers through his body. The Father is incapable of suffering. This is a doctrine of God's suffering, and the suffering is done by a lower God who can endure such experiences. In spite of a certain crudeness and simplification, this is a recognizably Arian creed. I don't know how to react to this. I think he's offended in part by just the tone. He's offended that it's not making any concession to the Nicene Creed. Yeah, but you can't always suppose that the middle way is the reasonable way. And which of these points that he emphasized could not have been agreed to by most of the Easterners? There are some who would insist that the Father eternally generates the Son by His will. This creed doesn't want to go that far. 
And presumably they don't want to go that far just because they don't think the scriptures go that far. And of course, the scriptures don't say that God generated his son or his word by his will. Insistence on the unique status of the father? Sure, but that's in all the Eastern creeds. We've heard many of them in this series. Rejection of the new language introduced at Nicaea in 325? Again, that's just standard issue for the Eastern councils. I guess what's new here is just the insistence of not going beyond biblical terms. Of course, you can point out that they go beyond biblical terms. They use the word impassable. They describe the father and son as personas in Latin. They talk about the son taking human nature. They use the word trinitas. Of course, none of these are specifically scriptural expressions. What they should have said is that non-scriptural expressions that assume some controversial speculation should not be imposed by Christians on other Christians. But they don't say that. They are kind of crude. I'll give Hansen that. The son suffered? Well, they're all saying that, that he suffered in his flesh. Not clear how that works. Athanasius, seems to me, has a big problem with that, as do people like Eusebius. They don't, like Origen, want to say that there's a man involved in the Incarnation. They just want to say there's a flesh there or a human nature. Yeah, but is that even the kind of thing that could possibly suffer and be killed? Not clear. Is the suffering done by a lower god? Well, it's done by a lower being who can be called God, but that's a very old and standard view at this point. Hansen also says that this creed attacks the dedication creed of 341. I don't know why he says that. I don't understand why he would take it that way. In any case, he describes this 357 creed as follows. It is the manifesto of a party, of the party that stood in the tradition of Arius, though it did not precisely reproduce his doctrine. And as a manifesto, it was also a catalyst. It enabled everybody to see where they stood. At last, the confusion which caused Westerners to regard Easterners as Arians can be cleared up. This is an Arian creed. Those who support it are Arians. Those who are repelled by it are not. And we shall see in the next chapter that there were many in the East to whom the second creed of Sirmium came as a shock, so they felt as if they had been woken out of a dream. Very faintly, like the softest appearance of light before the dawn, the solution to the Arian controversy begins to be possible. The period of confusion is slowly coming to an end. The confusion, in Hansen's view, is resolved through the 370s, with a punctuation mark put on it from the Council at 381. It's a matter of fact that that basically ended this series of controversies. It's a matter of judgment whether or not it was also a solution to these problems. Is the period of confusion over? I don't think so, although it's in the standard script. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a personal note from me and a couple of announcements.
before we go, I'm going to do something that I almost never do, which is to make a few personal comments. I don't do this very often because I don't tune into podcasts to hear about people's personal lives, and I'm not there to worship their neato personality. I'm there to be informed. I'm going to stop doing these historical-based episodes for a while. This run that I've just completed, episodes 169 through 177, has kind of left me worn out. The thing is, I'm a professor, and I'm teaching three classes right now in the spring semester, and preparing these historical episodes, it's kind of like teaching another class. So anyway, I need a break from doing it. I am determined, actually, to get through all the ecumenical councils at some point. But I'm going to pause it here, because in this controversy, things take a turn for the more complex. I'll also tell you this. Some listeners of the Trinity's podcast prefer interviews, and some prefer these historical episodes that are more in-depth. If you are strongly one camp or the other, then I apologize either for what I've just done or for what I'm about to do. There's no keeping everybody happy. But I am going to go back to interviews for a while, and I'll think about doing another historical run, maybe in the summer, maybe later than that. My life is kind of over full at the moment. There are some things going on I can't talk about right now. But I'll tell you one thing. I'm on the verge of publishing a book called Thinking About the Trinity, which I hope will be useful to many people. It doesn't hide what my own view is, but what it does is lead with a bunch of undeniable distinctions and undeniable information, whether it's historical, logical, philosophical. It's an attempt to empower people to actually think about the Trinity. Most Christians, in my experience, don't try, at least very often. And when they do try, they pretty quickly get discouraged. And I think it's something that's important to think about. So this book tries to give people some basic tools they can use to navigate through the issue of different views about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've decided to self-publish it, mainly because I just don't see any advantage to going with a traditional publisher for this little book. But I just haven't had time to finish getting it together because I've been so busy with these other things. So I hope within the next few months I'll manage to get that out. The thing is, I still do have class preparation. I have writing commitments that are overdue, and I'm going to talk at two conferences in May. Your prayers, as always, are appreciated. Thanks for listening. This week's thinking music has been the track Simplify by Little Glass Men. We got a couple of new reviews in the iTunes store, one in the store for Switzerland and one in the U.S. iTunes store. A user from Switzerland whose name is PMLBKL says, always worth listening and gives us five stars. Their complete review is this. The Trinity's podcast is consistently of interest, addressing topics related to but not exactly part of my field of biblical studies. Dale Tuggy is measured and informed when he discusses a topic, whether the discussion consists of original content or an interview. A broad range of material on the Trinity's podcast keeps me coming back. Sometimes it's church history, sometimes philosophy of science, sometimes philosophy of religion or theology. I always look forward to the next episode. Thank you for your work on this podcast. A U.S. iTunes user named Rob WBJ also gives us five stars, and the headline is Bible-Tethered Philosophy, Theology, and History with some focus on the Trinity. 
the full review says, Professor Tuggy can talk philosophy with the scholars, question theologians sympathetically, search out historical viewpoints, and usually make it all understandable but logically grounded. And despite the variety of subjects and viewpoints, there is often a solid attempt to look at the issue from a biblical, especially New Testament, perspective. Occasionally the subject does not appeal to me, but many discussions I have listened to more than once. Highly recommended if you would like to think biblically and approach that goal logically. Thanks so much, folks. I really appreciate the reviews. Keep them coming. I'd like to send out my thanks to Jan in the Slovak Republic. Thanks, Jan, for your donation through PayPal. He left a note on there and said, The miniseries on creeds of the 4th century is superb. Thank you, Jan. I much appreciate it. I'm sorry that I'm going to have to pause it for now. I hope you'll also enjoy the interviews that are coming up. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.